We're online, we're live on YouTube, and this is Reality Check. And I'm Ben in Johannesburg, and ready over to you in Washington, D.C. Okay, good morning, good morning, good morning. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of Reality Check. My name is Redi Chabi, and as Ben said, I am live with you from Washington. It's so nice to be with all of you in what I hope will be a conversation about democracy and election, but a conversation about what we hope for and the kind of world we aspire towards. I also hope it you know, will be a conversation about um, the challenges that are facing South Africa and whether or not we think there are some solutions that we can explore together. You know, before I invite our guests to just share their comments, I just thought I should share a little bit about what inspired this moment for me. What inspired it is that I've always voted. I have always voted. But for me, the 2019 election was the election. That was the pivotal moment for me as a South African. Why? Because a lot of what we know about the scourge of corruption in our country was already known. And I thought 2019 was that year when we will take a stand and show the ANC the door. I'm going to be unequivocal about that. Now I know we've got some academics here who will share with us um, with a sharp analysis that it is true that the ANC has lost a share of the vote. So that is the reflection of people's uh, anger perhaps against uh, the, the corruption and bad governance and all of that. But for me, it wasn't enough because I feel that the scourge of corruption nearly brought our country down. And by 2019, we already knew how institutions were weakened, how toxic relationships between business and the political sphere of our lives have caused our country to just lose its moral camp campus and, um, and all this corruption that we we're talking about. So I thought that was the moment that we were going to punish the ANC, but it didn't happen. So how do I feel about 2024? Of course, I'm going to vote. But I am curious about what the rest of you believe this election is about. The previous one was for me about corruption. The second thing that inspired this moment, I travel a lot as I moderate different parts of the world. And I meet South Africans whom I regard as privileged, black and white. Privileged because I meet them in the Netherlands and they are students at a university there. I meet them in New York, they are students at Columbia or they're there on a fellowship. I meet them in Washington, in Paris, all over the world. And when I engage them about the elections of 2024, there was always a, huh? And then later on when I engage them about where to go to register, again, huh? And I thought, wait a minute. If people with so many options are not even engaged with the democratic process, if the pursuit of personal ambition is such that we're disengaging with our democracy and our nationhood, what must a young person who's stuck in Lusigisigi and Orange Farm or even Soweto or Limpopo, who doesn't have food to eat, who doesn't have an education, who doesn't even know how to write a CV, what must that person do if when with your first class ticket to Amsterdam, to Washington, to New York, you just couldn't be bothered? So it was that restlessness that brought me to this space. But the last thing, and that's when I'll hand over to the guests in just a moment, the last thing that brought me to this moment was looking at the election results from other parts of the world. The election in Netherlands, that gravitation towards right-wing 
parties in Italy, in Sweden in 2021, and then hearing in the UK how they are talking about tightening visa requirements for outsiders, including students as well. Hearing the acerbic reference to immigrants and migrants all over the world. And I thought back to those privileged South Africans and thought, are these guys actually serious? Do they realize that you don't run away from global crises? The world to which they wish to run to is also closing ranks. In those countries, democracy is also on the ballot. In those countries, it's being debated whether to allow foreign students to come with their families and so on. So fear of the other and the future of democracy seem to me to be on the ballot. And if you are a South African who wants to disengage from the democratic process, where do you think you're going to run away from? Here's something that we need to consider. Globally, more voters than ever in history will head to the polls. Uh, about 64 countries are going to the elections, including the EU, uh, Ghana, South Africa, the US, the UK, um, uh, Russia as well. So everywhere there's this contestation. And I just wanted us to start having conversations about these themes, about these issues, and as they relate to South Africa. <sighs> okay, I'm having this conversation with my colleague, Ben Cashton, who's been my executive producer on The Big Debate, firstly, because we disagree on everything. Secondly, because he's the most opinionated person I know, and I discussed these issues with him, and I thought that he would steer us into some themes and contestations around, um, around elections and democracy, and then we can hear your opinions. Ben? Thank you, Reddy. That's uh, one of the most wonderful introductions I've ever had, that I disagree often with Reddy Clabby. Um, not all the time, just about 75% of the time. Um, I want to say one thing. I'm not going to give a long list. Is it legitimate to protest against all that has gone wrong in South Africa by refusing to vote? Because this is something for 10 years now that I've thought is a good way of protesting, is an acceptable, is a way of protesting that we can't really argue against with so little, with so much to complain about, with the ANC better life for all, delivering, you know, arguably very little of a better life for all and a much better life for, you know, the cadres in the movement. Isn't it legitimate for young people and others to simply say, ah, I can't be bothered. There's no one to vote for. This lot, you know, whichever party it is, are not worth my effort. Or I'm going to protest against the whole system of democracy by staying away from the polls. So that's my one small contribution. What do you think? I don't agree with you. I, I, I just, I really don't agree with you. I understand theoretically um, the freedom of choice and that particularly young people can locate themselves in relation to their country whichever way they want. But I'm not even coming with a nostalgic reflection on the past. I know we're going to have Judge Albie Sachs in a conversation later. I'm not even talking about how so many people sacrifice so that we can have the vote. I'm not in that quick mode. It is simply that you've got to make decisions. You, 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 what you, you are freestyling through life, freestyling, moving from one place to another, and you don't think that where the country is going is necessarily also up to you and the first way to communicate that and take ownership of that trajectory 
is through voting. I, I don't think we are we have the right to cop out, uh, Ben. And um, legitimate protest, it sounds nice when you put it like that. But when there's so much at stake, um, why are you affording, why are you allowing yourself not to be part of that uh, decision making? I, I don't know. Shall we hear what our guests have to say about that? I'm willing to be persuaded. I'm keen to be persuaded. Stembile. Yes. Okay. So thank you for having me. It's so great to be with this, uh, um, to be with you guys again and uh, with every, all the other guests. Um, look, Ben, I get the sort of the philosophical argument about being able to, you know, that part of the right to, um, to, to participate is also the right not to participate. Um, but what that does is that it really maintains the status quo. And I think there's two things to understand about our system. The first one is that we don't have a, um, there's no way to show that you are protesting by staying away. We don't have a, you know, we don't have a category that says, you know, people that are staying away are staying away uh, because they are unhappy, right? You could be staying away because you're sick or you didn't get the day off work or whatever it is. So in terms of registering the protest, there's nothing mm. that says you're registering a protest. Even, even spoiling your ballot, which is what some other people then say that you must do, you spoil a ballot. That's only effective in a system where there is a category for politically or deliberately spoiling your ballot. For us, if you spoil your ballot in protest or whatever, you get lumped with the same people who put two X's down or who, um, who somehow in another way by accident, um, you know, spoiled their ballot. And so there's also no way of registering protest in that way. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so that's the two things, that the protest isn't actually seen. But then the second thing, and the most important thing, is that because we've got a proportional representation electoral system, where um, the, there's a quota formula that is developed. Um, so the quota is the number of um, valid votes over the number of seats in the legislature, so 400 um, in, in, in the National Assembly, um, and then plus one plus one to arrange for the fraction. But the point is that then that's a quota. So last election, it was 43,000 um, and something was the quota, uh, with 17 million or so people having turned out to vote. And so that's the number of votes that a party needs to get a seat in parliament. So um, we know that over the last um, three or so national election cycles, the ANC has had around uh, 9 to 10 million, uh, 9 to 11 million or so votes. The DA has gone to, um, it got to about 3.6 million votes um, in, in 2019. And, um, and so it's the number of people that turn out to vote is low, mm -hmm. um, then each of those parties, the two biggest parties that we have in the system, uh, get a bigger chunk of the pie because their votes... So, so hold on, ben, so staying away benefits, so staying away benefits them, uh, the bigger parties. The it very people the you think you parties. It benefits the bigger parties. Yes. 
it benefits Bingo, them because if, if more if fewer people turn out to vote then those parties that can get their people out to vote and the established parties generally can get a bigger slice of the pie if the pie is bigger uh so if more people have turned out to vote then we're more likely to have greater variation in terms okay. of how uh that pie is cut and how that pie is distributed I can't wait to hear what Ben Cashton has to say about that, but let's hear from <laughs> Malin Dooley. <laughs> uh, Malin Dooley is the founder and CEO of Groundwork Collective. This is a development initiative focusing on civic education, food security, access to water, and social entrepreneurship. And she's been out there trying to get people uh, to register to vote. In a moment, we're going to hear from Dan Corda, who's the host of 5FM's National Breakfast Show, in just a moment. Okay, so Mbali, why, what are you do- why are you doing this? Why are you rolling up your sleeves and uh, trying to get people to vote? Is Mbali with us? I think she dropped off the call, unfortunately. So we might have okay. to go next. Ne- no, we might have to go next next okay. to Dan. And I just wanted to say, I'll, I'll make it quick. I'm in the process of being persuaded, actually, because what Stembile is is telling us is that for change to take place at this precise moment in South Africa, we actually need more people to vote. You can't make generalizations about voting or not voting. We're at a particular moment in South Africa right now. Maybe we can go to Dan and hear his point of view while we try to get Mbali back. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. Uh, If you don't recognize me, the beanies are over here. I just felt like I was in distinguished company and I felt very embarrassed at the idea no, of come on, put it in back front. On. I want of... you the way that you are. Reedy, I have been listening to you since before I was a broadcaster and it was inspired by your multicasting on 7026567 and I I am appalled at what I am currently doing. But I will do it only for Reedy Clubby and only for a short period of time. I don't even think my headphones can reach over this. Are we good? <laughs> Yeah, you're good, you're good. That's how I know you. Okay, great. So um, there were quite a few things I wanted to say in response to Reedy's opening, but just on this voting matter, I personally believe that we've got to the point in South Africa, I'm 30, I've been hearing people telling off South Africans for not voting and saying, "If if you don't vote, you don't get to complain for 15 years. And I actually don't think that that's an effective strategy for getting people to vote. And I think that it actually misses the point. Like, unless we're having an argument about whether or not we should legally obligate people to vote, then there's no point talking about whether or not it's legitimate to vote in protest. The real question is, why aren't people voting? And the answer for me is twofold. The first one is that we have a fundamentally talentless political system right now. We have opposition parties who can't take advantage of starting 80 meters ahead in a 100 meter race because that's what the ANC has given them. And I just want us to reflect, I as a young person often talk to my friends and they say, we want to vote, there's no one to vote for. But, and that's because there's a fundamentally talentless class of political leaders in the opposition who couldn't inspire their moms to like look after them if they were sick. And that is a problem that the South African political establishment has. And that's why people aren't voting. And the second reason why people aren't voting is because the IEC, for all of its good qualities, um, is not good at communicating with people. So in the last, I mean, we're about to go into a voter registration weekend and we had one last November and I did content about this on my show online and also on uh, my breakfast show on five. And the overwhelming response from people the Monday after the registration drive was, oh, I missed it. I can't vote. Whereas we 
on air spent less than 10 minutes getting all of us registered to vote because you can do it online. Now, why is such a simple and obvious message not getting to South Africans? I think that is an extremely significant crisis. So when I think about people not voting, I don't think about whether or not they should vote, therefore they can't complain, or uh, therefore they can complain. I think about people being so radically uninspired in a moment of total crisis where everybody knows that the ANC is the worst, but still not a single opposition party has been able to mount a credible assault on the ANC's power. I think that is a far more serious problem than whether or not it's legitimate to not vote as an act of protest. And on that point, I actually think really to your opening statement, I don't think that the 2024 election is a, is a referendum on the ANC's corruption. We all know that. I think that this election is a referendum on the quality of South Africa's opposition. We're getting a raft of opposition parties. You see our democracy being fleshed out for the first time, where for nearly 30 years, the DA has just been the ANC in terms of policy, but we pinky swear that we'll do it a bit better because you trust us and maybe because a lot of us are white, to be honest. Um, and that's been a message. The EFF has tried to be more radical, but largely, again, they're all saying we're going to keep the social grants, we're going to do much of this, this the same, they're quibbling over who's in power. But what we've really seen coming into this election is a raft of new parties getting significant traction, like Herman Mashaba's action say who had an extraordinary opening in the local government elections in 2021, like the Patriotic Alliance that's giving the, uh, the DA sleepless nights in the Western Cape. And I just did an episode that we're releasing next week about the extraordinary misinformation campaigns that are copy pasting the RET strategy created by Cambridge Analytica. And what we really need to be watching is how the xenophobia uh, net networks of misinformation and disinformation have already been able to agenda set the immigrant problem as a massive problem in South Africa when meaningfully it actually isn't. And that is pushing the rise of these hardcore right-wing parties that really you mentioned as rising all over the world. These hardcore security fear-mongering parties like Action SA and the Patriotic Alliance. 2024 is a referendum on the political talent in South Africa being able to persuade people to go vote in a moment where it flippin' sucks to be in an ANC South Africa for me. You know what, that, that really resonates because I have been struggling with that notion about what is this election about for me as a South African voter. It was the 2019 that was about something else, the corruption. But when you're saying that this is a referendum on the opposition, I'm, I'm just pausing and, and reflecting on that because it really, really hits home. Because you know that the ANC is this. Um, how are these other parties responding to the problems of the moment and are they presenting with new ideas for the future? I wonder, Stembile, if you've got any thoughts around that, that the opposition is as much under scrutiny during an important election as the party that we are measuring, as the party that we are assessing. Yes, completely. And I think that one of uh, the, some of South Africa's biggest political failures actually come from a failure of the opposition, that there has been a failure of an alternative. And, you know, what I said earlier about um, about low voter turnout benefiting the sort of the two biggest parties in the country. What we also know is that when ANC voters are fed up with the ANC, they just don't vote. They don't turn out and vote for someone else. Um, and so... There's just very few alternatives. And I think that that's also what um, what we can have to also understand a youth not wanting to register 
Uh, and uh, there's about 14 million youth who aren't registered. Um, and it's because, you know, they, they're just not inspired to participate in the system at all. So, you know, it's not just uh, the, the governing party that people um, are not inspired by, but they also are just not inspired by the alternatives to that party. Unfortunately, though, democracy is a contact sport. It's a participation sport. And so, um, you know, boycotting the whole system it doesn't really do much to change things because a, a, a parliament is going to be elected whether you participated or not. And as we saw in Nigeria that had such low voter turnout last year, they've still got a president. They've still got governors. They've still got, um, you know, legislators. And so the, the democracy moves. Whether or not Whether you the bulk or not. of people participate or not, um, and so trying to influence it in some way, I think, is better than not. Uh, but I completely take Dan's point that you know our choices yeah. as far as opposition opposition goes uh, are really slim. I know an academic uh, from one of the U.S. universities who likes to say that if he could come back in another life, he would come back as a South African opposition politician. Uh, and, and, you know, and take over the country because it's really should be easy picking. Yeah, I think for me, you know, just coming back to whether or not people vote and how I conceptualize uh, uh, voting, for me, it is like the genesis. It's the beginning of the thing. Because if I'm going to keep myself out of the system, then I'm keeping myself out of the issues, whether the issue is our planetary uh, crisis or crime, uh, gender-based uh, uh, violence, BEE, whatever. I just cannot reconcile. I can't see in my mind how anybody in their everyday life will work towards solving particular problems, particular societal problems and social malaise without starting on that particular uh, uh, journey. So if the issue for you is youth unemployment, uh, and you are an HR manager or you are a business person or an academic, whatever, I am struggling to see how you can wake up in the morning to be the solution to the problem without linking the problem to a bigger political uh, architecture, which is also defined Ready. Um, uh, which is by elections. Yeah. So I want to put together what you're saying with what Dan's saying, because I completely agree with what Dan, Dan said. I think it's a beautiful way to frame this. This is about the failure of the political establishment, including the new kids on the block, to inspire. I mean, actually, Dan, a lot of the new parties, several of the parties, think that the way they're going to inspire is with the, the, the worst kind of xenophobia, the kind of populist crap, if I may say so, that, you know, they think is going to inflame passions and has got nothing to do with the solutions that Reddy is talking about. But actually, this is part of the problem then. We're sort of zooming in on the problem. If you want to get engaged in climate change um, solutions, if you want to get engaged in, you know, um, access to justice for the majority of South Africans, if you're passionate about human rights of Palestinians, until recently, there was no political party in South Africa with new ideas, something clever. And I said until recently, because some might say cynically that one of the reasons that the ANC government did its whole ICJ case is because they thought it would be good in the upcoming elections. I think the case is great, but it might be one of their reasons for doing it. But if you're trying to collect, connect, collect 
Huh, excuse me. If you're trying to connect solutions with the parties, the parties better be offering some solutions. We better have some politicians that are talking about climate change, that are talking about, you know, an end to extractive mining in communities that is polluting the air and the, and the natural resources. I think Mbali and Tuli is there and is able to join with her audio only. Oh, Mbali, we see your face, actually. For somebody who's had a substation doing this and this, you look absolutely exquisite, and I'm just happy to have you here. We we were just having a debate in Bali about the lack of talent, as uh, Dan argued in the opposition, that this, well, not generally, but just that if we are going into an election, it's as much the opposition that is under scrutiny as the ANC. And this election is about the opposition and what it is that they have to offer, since we already know what um, uh, what the ANC is. And uh, Dr. Mbete talked, as always, very, very critically around our electoral system and how it is designed that whether or not you vote or where you stay away from the vote, we don't have a system that conceptualizes that and captures it as a protest vote and somebody will be in power, a parliament will be formed, a cabinet will be formed and life just kind of goes on without you. So why have you made it your mission to be out in corners of South Africa telling people to, to, to register and, and vote? Don't people have a right to stay away from, from the process? Um, absolutely not. I don't think we have the luxury as South Africans um, to opt out of the system. And I think when you look at some of the facts that are coming out in the service that are done, there was one that was done by IDEA International University that South Africa was the fifth lowest voting country in the world, which is completely out of culture with a country that's three decades in democracy and still has so many issues as the ones that we do. So we absolutely have to make the conscious effort for people to actually understand what's at stake. And I think to both um, Dr. Mbete and Dan's point, the big reason that we don't see South Africans, A, understanding how the electoral system works or how the country works, or B, not being able to have talented politicians, is because we don't have enough of a civic base for active participants in the entire process of voting or keeping people accountable afterwards. So I was a politician for many years and I knew exactly how the system worked. And what I consistently kept um, seeing and finding was that people just were paralyzed by a lack of information. And so it has been a mission um, for us, not only to register people, but then to make sure that afterwards they have the civic education to be able to do something um, after they registered. Because again, South Africans love to uh, be upset about everything and then not do anything except sort of shout on their WhatsApp groups or on Twitter. Um, but I think that if they actually had the tools and they knew how basic things worked and what they could do that didn't have to involve political parties, we'd see a lot more access to citizenship and we'd see a lot more politicians being scared of them. Mm -hmm. uh, ben, did you want to say something before I carry on with them? No, no, go ahead. Okay, so then here's my, my big uh, worry. And I looked at these figures after the Nigerian uh, elections, and I know that South Africa is not immune uh, to these uh, you know, global trends. When we looked 
at the numbers for um, the 2021 local government elections. Nearly 1.8 million eligible voters, 18 to 9-year-olds, did not register to vote in South Africa. And then registration votes among 20 to 29 age group also declined since 2016. And... uh, so, so, so this trend was instructive for me because it implies that a larger number, a larger number of former 18 to 19 year olds still shunned the process in the 20s. I don't know if you, you, you hear what I'm saying, that if you shunned it the first time, then they shun it the next election. I don't know. I don't have the research to, to, to tell what they do in their 30s and their 40s, but it seems as if if at the start of eligibility, as it were, somebody decides to stay away from the process. It becomes harder and harder and harder to get those people to vote. To vote, and that means the current voters are going to get old. We're going to die, and so on. And then we are we are you know leaving a system where people have not learned to participate. Does that make sense? And something else, in line with that process, the politicians care less about what people have to say. I'm now persuading myself of how important it is to vote right now. Because the, the less people are voting, the less people are voting, the less the ANC cares. Okay, we got our majority, you know, with half, with, with, a, you know, with, with a third of the voters, if they indeed get the majority. So you get this sort of continuing gulf between the political elite and I mean, I'm just looking at a map, actually, of the voter turnout around the world. We could make this an international conversation. The countries with the vo- lowest voter turnout, Afghanistan, Iran, Algeria, Egypt, Venezuela, they all have particular reasons, actually. Um, Namibia, these are some of the countries with the lowest voter turnout. It might tell us something about the gap between political decision making in those countries, whether people actually care as they come back to power each time, about how many people are voting. Okay, uh, but uh, okay. thanks, Ben. Thank you, and thanks, Google. Dan, <laughs> on that question around, you know, the pattern. I don't vote the first time, therefore the second, therefore the, that that gets me worried somehow. Yeah, so I have quite a lot of thoughts on this. Um, so the first one, uh, which I've always found quite interesting, is that young people in history overwhelmingly don't vote. And very, very often people start voting the older they get. Uh, in, in particular, once they hit their 30s, once they start feeling a commitment to the place that they're living in. So you get married, you decide to have children, you decide to buy a property, take out a bond, you realize that you can't really, you were talking about the people leaving earlier and not caring. I think, and and what's happened with the show that I do online the issue is i think it speaks to a sudden shock of young people going i never intended to leave south africa but oh my word i'm getting married and i'm going to be here and it's just hit me really full on that i'm going to be here and i don't know who fikile mbalula is and i don't know if his inane tweets matter and i don't know I'm about sure that's a couch. to know who Mbalula is <laughs> I know, but many people don't. It's crazy. Um, uh, And so there there is an overwhelming pattern around the world that the older you get, the more likely you are to vote. But there is this horrible 15-year period at the beginning where you don't. And particularly in South Africa, where the median age is 27, that's a unique problem for us, where much older generations are deciding who is in power. And to Ben's point, it's not just the ANC, which probably doesn't have an incentive to get many new voters. It's the big three. Because as Dr. Mbete said earlier, the established voting patterns right 
right now do very well for the DA and the EFF. But a lot of these insurgent parties that are going to debut in this election, they are not pulling ANC voters. Most ANC voters by data are not open to persuasion. What's more likely is that they don't bother to rock up to vote. Not that they vote for a different party. And so the DA and the EFF are worried. I mean, the IFP and the newly, uh, the, the IFP resurgence in KZN since 2019 is a serious worry for the EFF. That's why they've been bagging on the IFP so hard and did their manifesto or their campaign launch at Moses Mabita Stadium. The DA is terrified because there are many smaller interest group parties that are cutting into their pie. So there is an establishment political party incentive to not get more voters. What's interesting though, that I did want to say really that I think is maybe different to any election in history is the prevalence of social media. And by that, I specifically mean places like TikTok, which are far more used than Twitter is and way more used than Instagram. We have seen with uh, the Gaza crisis and the plausible evidence of genocide by the IDF against Gazans, Palestinians in Gaza, that the prevalence of social media means that mainstream media has less control over what we, the people, care about and absorb because there's so many more phones that can record data, so many more accounts where it can be published and so many more people who can then go online and say, I do care about this thing, which means that I think for a political party that wants to take advantage of this election, the one that gets social media rights could become incredibly effective because that is where people are airing their kinds of frustrations and where people have more power over the prevailing narratives than ever before. I think 15 years ago, if what is in Gaza um, had happened, the media coverage would not have been governed to such a pro-Palestine extent because we've seen the mainstream media on this issue just not covering South Africa's ICJ case or really under-reporting the atrocities that Israeli Defense Force people have kind of um, committed, you know? So these are things that I think about where there's a unique opportunity to reach young people overcoming mainstream media bias uh, in this coming uh, election cycle that I think is exciting. But then the last thing I wanted to say to Ben's point about the countries in the world that have low turnout rates for elections, Ben, you mentioned Afghanistan and you mentioned Venezuela and others. Those are countries where I think it is fair to say that the people have realized that they have no control over or ability to influence the institutional power structures. And that hopelessness, that sense of, oh yeah, you can tell me one person, one vote, but really it's never going to matter. It's not going to change anything. And and I mean, we could in South Africa, because I really do believe that in South Africa, a lot of people don't vote because they think it's not going to change anything. The institution is built for the elites. How do you overcome the ANC? Yeah. And even if you do, all the other political parties can, are part of that establishment. And we could move can further I in that direction say, if we're... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I think we, we're going to have to move. We've got, we've got the next three guests waiting, but let me give way to Stembilo. Stembilo, one final uh, close I just want comment. to make a last we... point. Yes. And two things that I want to say is firstly that really the point that you're making about the voters role aging out is true. Research by Colette Schultz-Hartenberg uh, from the 2019 election showed that there were 48% of people 18, ages 18 to 29 who were registered to vote in 2019 compared to 58% just five years earlier in 2014. And I think we're going to see a similar um, trajectory uh, for the 2024 elections. But what I want to say around uh, the social media is that, yes, social media is incredibly powerful. And yes, it's a really powerful tool to harness. But nothing beats going out and meeting people because people don't vote for who they don't know. And what we have to accept in this country is that the ANC is the only political party in the country 
that has invested in having a present in a presence in all 4468 wards in this country there are 4468 wards the ANC is the only political party that actively campaigns in every single ward isn't in it a resource None question of the other yeah parties. i was going to say it resources it's a resource question it's a resource, it a resource question, question but even a party it is a resource question, but even a party as big and as well-funded as the Democratic Alliance has not invested in that infrastructure over the 25-whatever yeah. years it's existed in its current form. Okay, and I'm going to jump in. If you don't invest in meeting people and getting them to vote for you, you're not going to get the votes. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to jump in and say, Dan, we need some tips on how to break out of the echo chambers of social media because social media is great, except that I don't hear about any of the other parties because I've never liked them. I've never you know, gone there. I need to get out of my echo chamber. On that note, we have waiting for us, I believe, Justice Albi Sachs, Lesejo Tlabi, another Tlabi, lurking on our Zoom call. Nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> and Zuleika Patel. Um, I would, I'd love to bring them in. Ah, Albi, are you... Uh, oh, my word, you all look so wonderful. Albi Sachs, how are you? Sorry, how are you, sir? Are you in... I think you're muted. Oh, nope, we just... We're just setting you up to be broadcast on our system. Just give us a few seconds. Okay, go for it. Try again. Um, Justice Albi Sachs, where are you and how are you? Okay, I can't hear Albi. No, I can't either. Teething troubles on our system. Let me help solve them. Okay, while you do that, can I welcome Zuleika and Lisejo? Can you guys hear me? Are you there? We are tests as we go on. It's just the cause, so sorry about that. Can you, can you hear me, uh, Zuleika? Okay, nobody. I can't hear anybody, so I'm not sure why that is, but uh, can you please just solve those gremlins in the system? And just to bring you up to speed, we're just debating about our rights to stay in or out of the election process. We're talking about the options that are available for us from a point of view and the ANC. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on what this election is about. And what I love about these political discussions is that you, you kind of go in with a particular um, opinion, and my opinion was quite strident that young people don't have a right to check out of the electoral system. But having listened to my guests previously, especially Dan, that hold on, instead of blaming people for staying out of the electoral process, we need to put the spotlight on uh, the political parties and what they are not offering. And that is how we need to address the, the voter turnout, especially amongst young people. I argued that there's so much that is at stake. It's not just unemployment. It's not just crime, but it's also about ideas for the future, how we respond to the planetary crisis, respond to the challenges to democracy of the world. Okay, so I don't know if that's giving you time to fix the gremlins in the system so I can hear our guests. Justice Sachs, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Oh, now? wonderful. Yes, I can hear you. Lesejo? Hi, Rudy. You can hear me? You can hear me, right? And Zuleika, you can hear me as well. Yeah. Yes, okay, I can hear great. you. Can you hear oh. me? 
I can hear you. Thank you very much. Albi, let me start with you. Uh, welcome, welcome. I'm not quite sure how much of the last conversation you heard, but where we left it off makes me want to start here with you about the Constitution and how, for me, as you grew up in Soweto in the 80s, benefited from the fruits of democracy, I come to the space with uh, a recognition of the sanctity, as it were, of the Constitution. But equally, I must listen when people argue that the fruits of democracy have not been tasted by all and that the problems that we have are because of leadership, but also the limitations of our Constitution. I agree with that, but I want to hear them when they say that. How should we, 30 years into our democracy, relate to what we've been taught has been a progressive constitution? How should we relate to it today in South Africa? Ready, I have been listening, and I notice when you speak to the others, you're all lively and sparky, and when you speak to me, you are very, very <laughs> serious and thoughtful. Uh, and what it brings out to me is, in fact, Maybe I'm the worst person to have on this debate for not one reason, but several reasons. One is I'm decades out of date. Secondly, in terms of my proximity to the events that are going on. Uh, secondly, I don't use social media. I use my email a hell of a lot, and that's about all. Uh, thirdly, as a judge, I'm not supposed to comment on all the exciting, interesting, hot topics. Uh, I, I can deal in abstractions. But one advantage of being out of the political arena uh, and, in a sense, being out of date in terms of the present political combat uh, is that I can see how wonderfully significant it is that we take for granted the basic structures of democracy. We assume that the elections will be free and fair. We assume that if the ANC loses, they step down. That's huge. It's not mm. just a little thing. It's not just a nice thing. It's huge, huge, huge. Uh, so in that sense, uh, being the antiquated person I am, uh, a little bit remote from the live reality, uh, I have a, a huge surge of, of satisfaction amidst your dissatisfaction. Your dissatisfaction is the system isn't working nearly as well as possible and that there's fading involvement and interest. My satisfaction is we've got the system and it's survived and it's meaningful. And, and to get a change of president, you don't have to send tanks into the street. You don't need a million people in, in the square, like in Tahrir. You can simply use your right, right to vote. So it's very educational for me to hear from you, to get the statistics, to see the different uh, levels and strata, age groups and so on, who, who are voting and who aren't. But beneath all of that is that enormous satisfaction and joy, what was said to be impossible in South Africa, in Africa, is to have democracy that functions, that votes, that voting, that, that that's meaningful. Uh, and and um, I now have the problem of myself having to decide who to vote for, 
the national level, provincial level, vote for individuals and so on. I'm glad to have that problem. I'm glad to have that problem. What I'm looking forward to is something that I think would be of great help. Uh, and that is something that we planned initially. Uh, our decision to go for proportional representation was like a surprise. Uh, I think almost everybody to South Africa. We had a conference at a wine farm in, in the Cape of people from ANC regions and branches, from University of Western Cape, from Wits. There was a guy from Potchefstroom University, somebody from the Liberal Party in England. There was a, a, a political scientist in America who phoned through to us afterwards. This was only phones in those days and said, what you need uh, is lawyers are always saying on the one hand, on the other hand, what you need is a one-armed lawyer. And we all burst out <laughs> laughing because, uh, of course, I was the one-armed lawyer participating in, in, in the discussion. And what we decided then uh, in all the groups that we had was we have proportional representation for the first elections to get the Constitutional Assembly, to get everybody there. We didn't want to be fighting over constituencies. Uh, we didn't want... We wanted real representation, uh, democracy in its fullest sense, representation in Parliament. But we also wanted accountability. And the idea was the second elections would be like the German system, having constituencies. And, and although having wards doesn't make for a huge vote in, in the municipal elections, I think having constituencies for general elections would mean somebody in your neighborhood, in your community, is standing. Uh, and and they go around canvassing door to door, people you know. Uh, I think there'll be much more interest, much, much, much more mm. connection. And hopefully yeah. uh, the next round of elections, there will be cross-party discussion about getting a better electoral system because I think it's accepted cross-party now that the present system... Uh, is not functioning as well as it should. Uh, at that proportional representation on its own doesn't give enough immediate contact with the people whom you're voting for. At the same time, you want proportionality. Uh, and if I'm still around, and I hope to be around, maybe for the next elections, uh, I'll be punting for this. Uh, I might say I was out of the debate when I went onto the court. Uh, I would have favoured that if I'd still been politically active favoured that in the original constitution, it's not there. So that might be something very, very useful. And then you get young people standing. Uh, and and uh, in the US, young people got votes from young people. You know, um, and in the United States, there's a process of trying to disenfranchise lots of young people. I mean, this is a reminder of what we've got, Albie, that, you know, Trump and others in the United States don't want young people to vote. They particularly don't want young black people to vote. Um, they don't want people who've been, you know, sentenced um, and uh, uh, former felons or whatever to vote. So, you know, there's a whole process going on in other parts of the world of disenfranchisement. So it is a reminder that we still have a system in which people have a lot of beliefs. I mean, look how fast it went downhill in the United States with, with Trump. You know, we... we believe that the ANC would remove itself from power if it was elected out. Do we? We do, hey? We do believe that. Ready? <laughs> our, our, checks, yeah, our checks and balances. I don't know. I, I think that you, you do have to have a level of hope. If you are a political animal, 
while I want to stay engaged, I want to stay active, I want to be vigilant, you, you need hope by you need to believe that the electoral system will work. It has worked that's thus far. Um, granted, but I think hope is not a bad thing to have, even in, in political circles. But I one of the young people here uh, who are with us, Lesiko, I know is young, and Zuleika too, you were the face of protest uh, when you were still a high school student and so on. Um, I'll be talked about something interesting around our electoral system. I don't want to get into a history lessons around why we this electoral system and so on, but I think it's important for us to appreciate why we are here. But what I do hear from young people is vote directly uh, for, for their representatives representatives would it excite you guys as young people a little bit more if you can you could vote for a person just Not a party, a party. Yeah. yeah when you vote for a into parliament by someone's personality if they've got car and this the same way donald trump power right it was his odious post personality amongst other factors as well would you be more excited about the process um, yeah, I think I'd be most excited about the process if um, people represented our age too, um, or closer to it. I think it's also a mm. bit, uh, I don't know, it feels a bit unnecessary to vote for people who are much, 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 much older, just because some of the decisions they make feel like it's because they don't really have that long and might not care that much about the consequences. Um, and I, sometimes I look at countries like New Zealand, I look at countries... And I just get a bit envious of the fact that politicians aren't representing only one age. I'm not really sure why South Africa has made it our national emblem to have much older politicians. I know America is the same. Um, but yeah, I just wish I had not only personalities, but just politicians that represented me more, that looked like me more. And I know that there are young and up and coming parties that do have people like that. Um, and maybe we'll wait you know, a few years until they get proper representation in parliament. But that, for me, would make me more excited is just I don't think a president needs to be minimum 65 or 70 and all our politicians need to be that age. I'm not sure why we don't have strong um, candidates who are in their 40s. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a political party system. But but what are your thoughts? I I mean, sure, sure, Albie. I was just going to say what's been very remarkable all over the world recently is young people are getting a lot of support. And if they're comedians, even the better. Uh, Zelensky was young and a comedian. Uh, there was uh, in, 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 in other countries as well. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, in, in Latin America, uh, very strong support. And, and the youth vote coming out very, very powerfully. Uh, so Trevor Noah would probably have a better chance than anybody else. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Okay, well, having said that, I'm running for 2028. So. We're voting for you. You're running? We're voting for you. Zuleika, are you voting? Can you translate your activism on the streets into a vote at the ballot box? Do you believe in the system? Are you, are you looking forward with enthusiasm to vote? To pick up um, from what Lesejo actually touched on, I think that with the current electoral system, I think what would excite a whole lot of young people is that, number one, instead of leaving it in the hands of a political party to nominate a candidate that would be in office as a president, I think 
if possible, we should move to a direction where you not only have your local your local vote as well as your national vote, where you vote for a national um, party to lead the country, but also have a vote where we vote for presidential candidates and actually cap the um, age limit that after a certain age, you cannot contest to become a president of the country. Because I think that one of the biggest factors that um, takes young people away from the excitement around voting and being part of um, utilizing their constitutional right is the fact that young people are extremely underrepresented in politics in this country, in governance. They're extremely underrepresented. Mm -hmm. And outside of being underrepresented, young people's core socioeconomic issues are not addressed enough by the people in governance. And if we had younger people in governance, it would better the way um, the socioeconomic challenges that young people in this country are facing. So I think that we need to kind of transform the system in terms of where we actually have a third can I say a third ballot? Because I know you get two ballots. A third ballot where you vote for a presidential candidate and it's not left in the hands of a political party when they mm. convene in conferences for them to decide on who the presidential candidate will be because that becomes a very biased process where it's a very biased mm -hmm. process and it shouldn't be left in the hands of politicians when they gather together in their conferences for them to nominate um, the candidates who will be the president, the deputy president, who will be part of their um, top six or top ten um, candidates. There should be a third element to our election where we're voting for presidential candidates. And on that, there should be an age limit that after a certain age, possibly let's even say 50, after 50, you cannot contest to become president of the country because you will... You only have four years to go. Yeah. So let are you tough. not part of the future of the country if you are older than that and you cannot be at the helm of shaping the future of millions of young people in this country who make up the majority of the demographics of the country and with this upcoming election just to touch on what you asked me um this is going to be my first um my first ever national election i first voted in 2021 when we had our local elections but this would be my first one and i am quite excited because i've always believed that you cannot um as a young person you cannot especially as a young person born post 94 you cannot decide not to vote you cannot this is a constitutional right that has been not just fought for people have died for us to be able to vote and so like a we, are, we are in a time right now in the country where more than anything, it's so critical for each young person to show up at the polls and make their voice heard because young people cannot just remain in the streets protesting with placards. Young people need to make sure that their activism is translated into ensuring that they shape who are the voices that are at the decision-making table by the now, first step, going to vote. Zuleika, could we vote for you? This is a, a question I want to explore because I'm more excited. Ben is over, ben well, I, is over me, so yeah. kind of out of the. Your audio is 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 cutting a bit. Ready? We might have to. Um, you might have to rejoin the the connection, and I think that'll that'll solve it. But 
you know, is there a party, Zaleka, that you would join, take over, and let us vote for you in? Because you say, you say there should be more young people. Is there a party out there for you um, to be in, not just as a voter, but as a candidate, as somebody that we could find Zuleika in and vote for Zuleika in? Because it sounds like we need you in the parties so we can vote for you. Unfortunately, I don't think that there is a party I will join as um, a member who would be potentially a candidate contesting. But I think that perhaps maybe give it another 10, 15 years, maybe I might just be an independent candidate. Should we even move in the direction of actually having a um, third element to our elections where people vote for presidential candidates? Perhaps I what I'm hearing you say is that when it. you participate in elections, you are going in it so that that process you are president. Nothing else uh, will satisfy you. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> but but Lisiko, I mean, you you are overseas. I know uh, you interact with people still in South Africa who are also overseas. What, what are your what are people saying in your circles? I mean, are they at all interested in voting? What conversations? Are they having about their future prospects in South Africa, in or outside of South Africa? What, what are you guys saying? Well, the first thing I always find is like when people understand that we've left South Africa, it's like, oh, you can't participate in the democracy anymore because you've chosen to go. Um, this is your reality. Like, just go and be in your new place. Um, and for me, there's like a couple of reasons why people leave. And I can't speak for anyone else, but I personally didn't leave because I no longer want to be considered South African or I no longer want to participate in my country's democracy or in what's happening at home. Um, I'm very much South African first, no matter where I live. So it's very important for me to take part in con conversations, to take part in a democracy. Um, I've registered to vote in Paris, and I know a few people who've registered to vote in the countries that they live in now. Um, not all of us also left South Africa because we just think it's dire straits there and we just can't stand to be a part of South Africa anymore. I left for a lot of personal reasons, including the fact that I felt like what I was doing in my career and my capacity, I'd reached the ceiling of, and I wanted to expand and grow, but that wasn't to say that I hated everything about South Africa and I never see myself going back. So that's the first thing. Um, and so everybody I've spoken to, I also happen to kind of collect friends who are like-minded. So I think that the first thing is that I'll always have people who are active participants in democracy and in voting. And because like Zuleika said earlier, I think for me, there isn't a conversation about whether or not you can vote. Like it was hard fought for, and that's putting it mildly. The, the fact that people died for it, I just don't think there's an option. I feel like political apathy is something that is uh, something that privileged people get to to decide in. Um, and I do know that there's obviously a class of people who don't get the the service delivery, don't get the the very basic needs, and they have the apathy in that way. But I think that when you have a choice and you just decide not to vote because you don't care enough, um, that to me points to privilege. So everybody in my circle and people that I collect around me are very excited to vote. Um, whether or not we think we have options, because I did a political, like match you with your political party quiz and the party that was chosen for me on this quiz. Oh my gosh. Um, so I'm not sure about this quiz. Which and part? No, not. come on, you've got to tell us. Which party was it that was chosen on your quiz? You know I want to laugh. Funny. Come it on. It wasn't as bad as Fences, because Fences got ANC, and I got um, Action SA, 
And there's a lot of reason why I have an issue with this party. Um, I still do think that it's probably less than, you know, if it was like DA. I think if Kels took the test, then obviously she gets the Democratic Alliance and she'd be very happy about that. Um, but yeah, I just feel like it's important to vote. I feel like it's it's great that we've got the voting stations overseas, but just because we don't live in South Africa anymore does not mean um, that we don't want to take part in the, the conversations and the democracy. And also doesn't mean that we don't see a future in the country. For now, I am living outside, but that doesn't mean that for me, this is where I see myself forever. I mean, you know, what's his name? Richie Sunak wants to send some of uh, the visitors to the UK to Rwanda. Doesn't that send a, a chill down our spines? I mean, those of us who might travel the world and be out of South Africa, it's just a reminder that everywhere you go in the world, you know, everybody wants to make somewhere great again, you know, with the, to the exclusion of people coming from other parts of the world. So we better not leave South Africa behind wherever we go in the world. Um, I also I think, and I don't know, Albie, if you have thoughts on that, I think that Sometimes when you're outside, you get a better perspective, uh, Ben. I mean, you grew up in the UK. You've been living in South Africa since 94. There, there is a, a, and again, I don't want to romanticize things, uh, diminish our problems, but there's ugliness in some of the campaigns that I've observed in the UK and in the United States. I know that they are, they call themselves advanced democracies, and I think we need to be questioning that in light of the chaotic nature of global uh, geopolitics uh, now, but the countries afforded themselves the title of most advanced, most sophisticated. There is a palpable ugliness in the way that they engage with one another, in the way that they talk with otherness, in the way that they engage opposition. It, it is very uh, violent. There's an intense bloodletting even in the, in the rhetoric. So I think that, that concepts of Ubuntu, uh, we may get cynical about them, but something to export to international relations uh, globally, how we engage as imperfect as we are. Albi, I don't know if I can shoot you because I know you can't go too far with the politics. <laughs> no, Ubuntu is, is safe territory. Everybody claims it. It's a cross-party thing, but it's actually extremely significant and it's very, it was very, has been very important for us on the Constitutional Court. But there's a notion of freedom which means I can make as much money as I like, I can do what I like with it, I can do what I like with my property, and to hell with everybody else. That's freedom. Uh, and the Ubuntu notion says, no, you're not really free. You've just to buy up that enormous wealth. You're living in a world uh, of, of other human beings. Uh, and, and we wouldn't have got our freedom without Ubuntu on a massive scale. Millions of mainly poor people working together, uh, giving up what little property and, and security they had for the sake of, of some, something greater. Uh, and, and I think it's held us together. It's, it's enabled us to overcome many, many, many crises. So it's not just a political philosophy. It's a deep cultural sense, very, very profound, particularly in African communities, of, of mutual support and, and mutual help. Uh, in, in, in political science terms, it means you, you reduce the conflict between uh, individualism, autonomy on the one hand, and communitarian approach on the other. For the one to win, the other must die. Ubuntu unites both of them. Ubuntu says that every individual counts, but counts because all other individuals count. 
So you strengthen your autonomy by seeing yourself as part of the wider wider community. You, you don't know, reduce it. We've become On the s- other hand, the purely collective approach can be very harsh and cruel to individuals. So it's that, that balance between the autonomy and the collective approach that I think is profound in South Africa. It's in, in lots of so, uh, community organizations, trade unions, faith communities, the singing, the dance, the humor, the cuisine. And now it's, we even find Ubuntu in our sporting teams, which we didn't have there before. Uh, yep. So I do see that as, as a, a major, major resource. You know, we've become so jaded, Albi, you know, to hear you reminiscing about Ubuntu. It's a beautiful thing. You know, these days we, we're so jaded. We're just in our silos and we, we hate the other. You know, we're beginning to be less joined as a society. So I, for one, as a fellow, you know, older person, enjoyed hearing your, your reminiscing. But let's go to another young person who has some belief in the um, electoral system because she's organizing a voter drive for young people. Moiponi, I think, is on the call. Please don't go away, everybody else, because we could always come back to you. Um, but Moiponi, um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing, why you're doing it, um, how you are getting young people to be interested in these parties that are led by old people, as we've just heard. And and is it is it working? <laughs> Um, thank you so much and good evening, everyone. Um, look, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely proud and, and so excited to be part of a group of men, women, uh, and people my age who, are, who really believe in the, in, in the democratic project. Uh, because for a long time, we know, and we've been um, expanding on it just earlier on, how uh, young people have, have felt like they're at the periphery of the conversation, um, that they are not a part of it. And uh, I must be honest with you, the reason why I'm doing this is because there are young people who just like me get a sense that we need to translate this alienation and this sense of apathy um, that that everyone is talking about into a more positive, hopeful uh, belief that there is a place for us, there is a space for us, and all we need is a platform that enables um, as to to really realize what it is that we're trying to achieve, and so yes, you, I, I I have to have hope, and I have to work with others that have hope because uh, for too long uh, we've been shouting from the outside in, and we've gathered that no one is listening, and so one has to take ownership and step up and roll up their own sleeves and say, how can I help? Mm-hmm. And so and so, I mean. Uh, you've got to have ideas about how to appeal to young people. The way in which the FBS generation, I include myself, are not speaking your language as young What tools are at our disposal to mobilize the voter registration at the final weekend, this coming weekend? What do we say to people who are watching? Uh, they have a chance to come out this weekend, but maybe not. How should we just them to cross over the line? Um, I think, if anything, the best thing to do in this situation is just be honest. I mean, we cannot change what we cannot acknowledge. And it's important to tell young people that we don't have all the solutions, that we need to listen to them, 
and hence um, from the movement, which is uh, Change Starts Now uh, Collective, we're doing exactly that and we've heard them. The way in which we're engaging them isn't working and what's important is to give them the space and allow them and enable them to take ownership. And so that's why we've, we've, we, 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 we in, in partnership with them, in collaboration with them, will be hosting this event on Saturday, uh, which will be having, you know, um, a, a fantastic artists such as Focalistic, DJ Chekho, uh, because that's the, you know, that's the, it, 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 it's so difficult at this stage to even separate it. Uh, our generation has merged the political with the social and with the cultural. And so it's important that we create that platform and that's what Saturday is about. And so they'll so have an opportunity to engage. You say there's a conflictoria? Young people can go and get entertained yes, while also... Yes. So, and, and so they'll be entertained, they'll be in that space where it's fun, it's interactive, it's engagement, uh, in, 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 sort of rather engaging, and still have a sense of, you know, uh, of, of voicing their opinions, for example, over why it's important to vote and engaging with their peers about why is it that the democratic uh, project cannot be given up on and that it's a collective responsibility and something that we all have a part to play in. And so it's important that one merges these spaces for engagement in a constructive way, but yet in a fun way as well, that they feel engaged and represented. Keep up the good work. We're really happy that you're doing that work. Hopefully, uh, you know, it, it works for you to be spending your time doing election. Who, who funds your work? Yeah. Is it funded by donors? Is it a... Is it a um, Presumably, you're not volunteers. You're doing it for for love and as a business or as a as an NGO. <laughs> uh, we most certainly uh, being assisted by South Africans across the country uh, who really want to see the democratic project of taking South Africa forward together. Awesome. So let's bring in our next three guests. And thanks, Moponi. Please stay on the call. And I want to invite. If they're there now, I want to invite Adam Habib, Kaya Sitole, and Jody Alamea to join us. So that's Adam and Kaya and Jody. Ready? I'm going to have to leave you to, to speak to them for a few minutes because there's load shedding coming in a couple of minutes and I have to go switch the generator on and turn a few lights off and hope that the podcast studio stays online. Hopefully it will. But uh, yeah. if, if, if our team can bring in Adam Habib. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Sort out your load shedding uh, okay. uh, uh, challenges. How's that flexion? Uh, uh, how is that for anything <laughs> that should be uh, high up on the agenda? And it's almost as if we've just gotten used to it. Uh, you know, when, when I'm in South Africa, I've been there for many years, you just get used to it. And you wonder what is going to happen. Because it's very much linked to our, um, uh, you know, economic stuff. Uh, and you are there. I think I saw your face earlier. You are there. I just want to start off uh, with this. What is this election about for you? Jody Alemea? Okay. So I. I don't know who's still with me and who's gone. I'm, I don't know who's still with me. Or still, are, are you there, Jody? Okay, I can't hear Jody. 
Okay. Hear me. All right. I can hear you now. Can I can you? hear you now. Please. What, what, what's Sorry. 2024 election about for you? What are those issues we need to move? Yeah, I don't disagree with, yeah, I don't disagree with a lot of the things that have been said earlier today. And I think Dan put it you know, really well and really strongly that it's about what our opposition party is offering. But for me, I think there's two kind of key things there. There's what are they offering on, on the issues that face us as South Africans and what are they issue, offering us on the dem democratic system itself? Um, and I think a lot of voters, are, it's very difficult in all the noise and <laughs> social media buzz and the media itself just, I know this is your kind of thing, really, but um, often just sort of reproducing press statements instead of kind of really interrogating and providing information in, in a useful way to, to us as voters. Um, but to unpack all of that information and know what is a party offering me on the key issues to me? And I think for a lot of people, those key issues is uh, around, obviously, economic uh, stuff. And for some, that's more urgent than others. Safety. Uh, corruption, but it's not just talking about those issues. It's actually like, what is what is the plan? And the plan is more than just policy. The plan is like substantive implementation um, that that is really you know talking about what these issues are on the face of it. So safety is more than just policing. Safety is social and economic. Corruption is more than just getting rid of the ANC. Corruption is dealing with a whole host of issues within society and individuals and institutions. We've heard very little about any of that from, from our, our um, candidates. We've got a lot of candidates running on uh, at a premier level on local government uh, service delivery, which is very confusing for voters to now know, well, why aren't you running on provincial functions. So to sort of make sense of all of that, it's very difficult to know what they're actually offering. And then what are they offering on the actual system itself? And to kind of reconfirm to voters that the system itself is fair and just and representative. And we've heard from the young people today that you know, they don't really feel that that system is very representative, um, that it's not set up in a way that kind of enables participation and all of that. And I, I really respect, you know, Albi's um, a reminder to us that actually it is a very well designed system and we can use the system to participate in so many uh, different ways beyond just voting even. Um, but to have parties that actually show us and remind us of what that is and their commitment to that system, um, how might they change it? How might they strengthen it? How are they inviting us to be a part of the solution? And I think, you know, we spoke a little bit about Ubuntu, but Many South Africans actually do want to be a part of a part of the solution. They want to be a part of something in society. And what does that actually look like? What is the offering in terms of that fair, just, and representative system for where you're going to fit in to part of the solution? So, for me, this election is which is the party that's actually going to show us that right now? I'm not seeing it from really very many, if if mm -hmm. any. Um, and uh, yeah, if if we don't if we don't get it. What we're going to end up with is a lot of people not voting, and that doesn't, as we've heard uh, from Sibin, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, uh, I forgot your name now, but um, the, the speaker who told us very clearly about the sort of statistical implications on on the on the um, legitimacy of of the government. It doesn't actually delegitimize the government. It just gives the same people more power without influencing their actual interpretation of their right to represent. Um, and what that might mean is that more. 
I do want to delve a little bit more into that. I mean, in, in between elections, you know, that democracy can be so very light in people's lives. We move from one election uh, to another and the election process itself, the electoral, election time is such an, uh, a moment. The things that matronhood, our indigenous citizens, are the in-between moments. And the one in-between moment that stands, up for, stands out for me and as, because I know that you are involved in urban and municipal governance, you are a specialist in that regard. That, that Joburg fire for me, such a visceral moment because I saw how one after the other, politicians were allowed to come forward. The media was complicit in giving the microphone and the camera to politicians to carry on and on and on, blaming other people, NGOs, outside uh, outsiders, African nationals, uh, urban dwellers. It was so chaotic for me that I wonder whether we enough of linking our election experience or process to those moments because that's where everyday life happens. And I use that example because for me, it was just a micro of the many problems that, that here are these people, we vote for them, kind of disappear from our lives. And when there's it's a PR moment, then they've disappeared again. Where does the buck lie? And how do we empower citizens locally and nationally uh, to, to, to challenge this kind of thing? What are your thoughts? Yeah. So I think one of the challenges with this election is that where we're facing a lot of the biggest issues with or impacts of corruption right now is at the local level. Obviously, there's issues at a national level in SAPs and load shedding, ESCOM is a huge one, but we really are feeling it at a local level. And the quality of the infrastructure, the quality of service delivery, the Joburg, with several instances in Joburg in the, in the last few months, several instances in Etiquini, et cetera. But this isn't a local government election. So it's very difficult for parties to now campaign at a provincial or, or a national election on solutions to those problems. Um, and I think we're seeing some of them try to do that, but but actually that just causes confusion and, and distrust. If people are educated about the spheres of government, it, it's just very clear that you can't do that. And if you're uneducated, it's, it's just a false promise that people are setting up. Um, but I think there's, there's a couple of ways in which we can sort of hold politicians to account on this. The one is where, where they can draw the line or the connection between the root cause of those issues and what they can solve in national government. So the one is obviously corruption. So what is the real offering on, on corruption that these parties are, are providing? They're not really talking to us about that. The offering is we're going to get rid of the ANC and that's going to get rid of corruption. That's really just not, not actually how it's going to work. But we need to be asking much more on that the detailed plan to get rid of corruption. Um, that- and, and the second... I was going to jump. I was going to jump in, Jody, just to say that. Um, let's go to Adam. Let's go to Adam for a second. Let's bring Adam Habib in. Where, where in the world are you, Adam? Are you are you back in South Africa? I'm trying to keep track of you. You were in the no, UK for. You're in the UK. I'm in the middle of London. You're in the middle yes, of London, the at the School of Oriental and African. <laughs> so. Ish, and you watching presumably the British democratic process, you know, with 
Prime Minister Richie Sunak and, and, and democracy in the UK, and then keeping, you know, one and a half eyes on South Africa. How, how do we do what Reddy just talked about? How do we make it so that what's at stake in the elections is not just get rid of the old guys because we'll be better for you. We, we care more. We are, you know, a bit cleaner or we're the new guys. How does it become a conversation, if ever, does it ever in the UK these days, about the real things? What happened in the fire in Joburg? Did we have a response? Did we end up blaming people? Isn't there fundamental human rights at stake in that situation? How do we make those conversations the conversations in an election campaign, or is that too naive? So let me start by saying, as uh, firstly, I think the world the world over, we had a serious, serious problem. Uh, I think I really made that point earlier on that uh, the grass is not greener on the other side. Uh, if you're seeing the kinds of ugliness in the American elections, you see the ugly debates that are playing out in the UK. Quite a few of the European countries have become fascist. The kinds of things that are playing out in India are really frightening. The one positive part is Brazil, where you got Lula back, uh, who had been charged for corruption, but he's way better Bolsonaro, than Bolsonaro that was there. But we, we've got a real dilemma that is a global dilemma. And I think that that's the first thing. Yeah. I do want to also say we've got a change in South Africa in this election. So I want to come back to a little bit of the pessimism that you articulate. I two reports on South Africa struck me in recent days. One was that 12 million South African citizens are starving. And five out of 10, 20 million children are starving in South Africa. That's an indictment on 30 years of democracy. It's a true indictment on the political elite. And it's a dilemma that we have. The second report that came to me, which shook me up, is we've got 800 doctors that are fully trained done their community service, but they're sitting at home and can't get a job. Mm. When we've got a health crisis in the country, we've got a fundamental health crisis, we've got 800 young people fully trained with the experience to start practicing, and we can't appoint them. But at the same time, all of the cars, all of the uh, protection for politicians, all of the wastage of money. It's all working. Government mm. It all works. So don't tell me this is a question of money. So the real question is it becomes, it becomes a question of priority. And that's what this election is fundamentally about. Now, Sita mm -hmm. made a point that not voting is a problem because if you don't vote, you just consolidate the the existing political elite, the DA, the ANC, the DA, and the existing large parties. The, I would add one of the additional thing. It's when young people did not vote in 2016 that you got Trump. When pro progressives, voters in India, stopped voting because they were khatfal, you landed up with Modi. The same thing happened in effectively Brazil where young people got disappointed with the PT and you landed up with Bolsonaro. So you land up with right-wing people, 
very conservative and frankly, very ugly people with ugly politics that destroy our world even, even worse. That's the dilemma of not voting. But then Coder raised an interesting point. That the reason young people don't vote is because it's a talentless political system. So what are we saying? We say, please vote, but we recognize it's a talentless system. Vote for one of the less talented people. We, we're not going to ask you to vote for useful people. Vote for the talentless lot. That's the dilemma that seems to me the conundrum of this election that we confront. We're asking people to vote, but we acknowledge that it's a talentless political class. What then are they voting for? A group of talentless people? And how do we navigate this, this issue? And it seems to me that the answer to this lies in two things. One, I'm, I'm sad to say you're not going to get the immediately the future you want. We're going to have to play the long game. We're either going to say we're out of the system and stuff the world and we're all going to be destroyed, or we're going to say we're going to play the long game. And our first thing is try and pluralize the system so there are more players in the national parliament in the provincial parliament, because that opens up space to hold people accountable. If everybody doesn't have a majority vote, you can form a coalition to hold somebody accountable, get a president out, get rid of a minister who's not performing, get rid of somebody who's, who's corrupt, etc. That's the first. The second thing it allows for is getting a new electoral system in place. We desperately need a new electoral system, and the big parties don't have an interest in allowing us to get a new electoral system. Because this current electoral system allows for the power of the parties to be consolidated. We need to diversify that power. And the only way we're going to get a, a new electoral system is if, again, we pluralize power and we can create a coalition of political interests that say, let's get a new election. And that's for us playing the long game. I also think one final thing, there are risks with this strategy. Because I, one of the things I worry about is we land up with coalition governments in South Africa. And frankly, the track record- Why are you worried about, why are you worried about coalition governments? Isn't that then the plurality that is that is missing in uh, in this space? We've talk, talked about the historical context of the electoral system that we have. Is it still fit for purpose? Maybe not. But what, isn't coalition the future then? Because all this plurali plurality and checking each other out will happen? It, it, it worked, but there's a risk. Because how it plays out is important. And so if you look at the history of coalition governments, and it's not been at the national level, but at provincial and municipal level, it's utterly disastrous. Look at Johannesburg as a city. Look at Pretoria. Look at some of the only successful, and I'm not even sure that that's successful, the only cohesive, coherent management strategy of a coalition government was the DA's attempt to win power in the Western Cape in an earlier period. It did, wasn't very good for the smaller parties, but it worked for the DA. And the real question is, in most other provincial and municipal cases, coalition government has been disastrous for delivery. And I worry 
about that. But I think we've got options. We, we're not going to get the best case scenario. So we have to hedge. And the best thing we have at this moment is try and structure a coalition government that works. And what we've got to figure out is how to make sure this coalition doesn't become an alliance of elite interests, that we keep them on the edges. And how do we structure that in a way that doesn't allow malevolent politicians to consolidate their power by buying each other out? Yeah, I mean, I see the logic of that, Adam, based on what do we want to do with the ANC? I mean, Reddy started by saying, let's not, let's not pussyfoot around that issue. We want to put a boot in the backside of the ANC and say, you have a very big responsibility for all of the failures of the last 25 to 30 years. You have to own up to it. You have to face it. We have to remove you from your smug, self-satisfied position of absolute ma majority. But... Do we want tomorrow to have none of the expertise, none of the historical memory, none of the commitment to the Constitution, which is still there amongst some of the rank-and-file ANC members and some of the veterans? So, you know, you are painting a scenario of a sharing of a, of a political system that keeps them accountable whilst substantially weakening them and making them see that they're not going to have an easy ride anymore. Sounds a little bit idealistic that we'll ever get to that but um sounds like something worth trying for so if we're going to make that happen we have to do a deal live on air now on reality check that we'll all vote for a different party because we have to have it so that some people still vote for the ANC so they don't get removed completely we don't lose them completely but we have enough votes for all the other opposition parties that the ANC gets seriously worried and you know they're in this situation of having to please other people in order to get things done. Jan Bond. But, but, you, but, but, okay, no, that, I think I take what, what um, Adam is saying, that even if we throw our weight behind these coalitions, what do they look like? The next, yeah. You know, what, what do they look like? Because if you take Johannesburg as an example, I know you did the Western Cape example fair and square, but in Johannesburg, I used to wake up every day not knowing who's my bloody mayor. You know, yeah. it, 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 it's been so crazy. So to say that I must now vote for an opposition or be a coalition, I do worry that in eight months' time, there'll be so much instability that the very people I'm trying to punish are, are going to come back. Stop here. Yeah, I mean, look at the United States where they can't even agree to vote for a budget to keep the government going, you know, for more than about six weeks at a time because of this they game. They won't do so, it because weakened at the guy but anyway yeah. Yeah. i want to i want to let jan bond have a look in here jan you used to be one of the producers of the big debate but you've been working and studying um urban development you're living in cape town the uh arguably the most unequal the South republic. yeah the republic the, the secessionary republic that will soon be independent is it an easy um decision for you to get off your bum, go and, and put a cross on the ballot paper and decide who to vote for? Presumably, you'd like to see Cape Town um, change quite dramatically from, you know, the, the, the mountain dividing the haves from the have-nots. What's your thought? I think that's, um, it's, hopefully that's an that's, uh, ideal that we all strive for in all of our major metros and and small dorpies across the country. Um, but I think that's kind of to wait till next year. We're not going to get that this year necessarily. 
Um, so that will that'll be something I'm looking forward to doing in local elections next year. Um, but I, I think one of the points that hasn't really been touched upon and which I'm quite excited about for this year's election is the opportunities for independent uh, candidates to come to the fore. Um, in my day-to-day living in the Cape Town CBD, I walk to my coffee shop and I bump into Zaki Ahmad, who pretty much daily gives me a, um, a, a little flyer with his memorandum and he has his dog and it's, and it's sweet. And it sort of, it goes back to um, Dr. Mbeta's point about needing to meet your candidates. Um, and um, it's, for me, it, it's, there's an opportunity there to really look at national and provincial elections as um, a quasi-local election where you, you know your, your um, PR representative who's going to um, be with you um, holding you know, your ideals in parliament um, and you can vote directly for them. Um, and I think it's going to be an interesting shift um, as probably the saying, we need we need a shift in 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 the election and how it's run, and that's that's I think the the, the core thing for me. Um, and looking to see how um, independent electorate um, independent candidates come out of the woodwork. Um, I haven't really seen too many aside from uh, Zaki, and um, I, I don't really know if, if if there's many more that are offering great options for us yep and there's only one who's buying your your cappuccino or whatever it is in the morning and giving you the flyer um and we really appreciate that you you told us who you're going to vote for um nobody else did (laughs) but uh adam and jody why aren't there more independents because this is a you know a part of the new system emerging you know despite the anc not having been keen on it for years they've now allowed independence to stand in in the national elections why are we not seeing more independent candidates and what part of the future is that is that part of the sharing of decision making we should be looking for maybe adam you've also got something um my understanding is they are quite a few independents, but I think they're quite hard to find. Uh, they don't obviously have the same budgets to campaign and organize and, and that sort of thing. So I think that's also where, you know, tools to actually help people find their candidates is useful. In local elections, there was a tool called My Candidate, which helped people to see who was running in their ward. And I think having something like that in the IEC should be helping to produce the data and things like that that makes that sort of thing sensible for people. Um, I'd, earlier on, there was a comment made about, you know, people shouldn't just be noisy on Twitter and, and there's other ways to kind of organize and, and participate. And uh, when that was said, I had this thought about how many people I know who used to be very active in community organizing or as activists and things like that, and have either become so disillusioned by the, their sort of impotence in that space that they've become only active on Twitter, or they've moved into politics. So they've made the choice to become politically active. They've decided the only way to kind of actually impact on policy and, and governance is going the party route. Um, and there's something there about well, discerning who are the individuals who are doing that for greed versus who are the individuals who are doing that uh, for you know, the, the public interest. And I think there are probably quite a lot of individuals like Jackie and others who come from a a community organizing and activist, a union background, et cetera, who have um, who've got a lot of uh, ability to um, perform that sort of representation and communication back to the public 
um, role who are worth uh, looking at. They're not going to drive huge change programs. They may be on one or two committees um, of particular interest and, and, can, and can perform a, a particular uh, role, but it's about choosing what that is and which one is important. Yeah. Adam, did you have something to say on this? Yeah. I, I'm very keen on independent candidates, and the reason I'm keen on independent candidates is the more independent candidates that get in, the more they can when they get into par when they get into parliament, they can cut deals together, and they can form coalitions as individuals in very very powerful ways that shift two, three, four strategic areas, and that might be something that could become useful. So that's the one way I, I'm quite keen on, on pluralizing power. Uh, the second is I'm really keen on pluralizing power within parties to disrupt the power hierarchy mm. within parties itself. And the thing that, that worries me and intrigues me about the DA is there's a very different quality leadership, it seems to me, at the national level and then at the provincial and, uh, in some senses, the municipal level. And frankly, and often the thing that bugs me about the DA is I often think that if they just kept quiet and never said anything, they'll win more votes. <laughs> uh, and it would be kind yeah. of nice to see some disruption in Especially the hierarchy of leadership. Especially John Steinhausen. No, guys, hold on, hold on. Maybe it's a good thing that they speak so that we see who they really are. It's so much easier to use the ANC's failures yeah. as a subterfuge. But let, let the real Steinhausen stand up. Yeah, so what he says about shoppers and drunkards from the township. Come on it's now. good. What it's good. It's good that they're speaking, so we know who they are, but it, it doesn't win them any votes. That's the thing. But, but really, yeah, really guys, what is interesting is does that... Is there a possibility emerging for the Steenhazens to be replaced by a new generation that may be more attuned to uh, the post-apartheid South Africa in ways? That doesn't mean they yeah. will be radicals, but it does mean they would be a part of the post-apartheid political rubric, as opposed... Yeah. What every now and no, and that's a good that's a good message that we need to, you know, put in headlines out of this debate. It's not just about voting, it's not just about choosing a party, it's about taking over the parties, changing the parties. I mean obviously we know it's mm -hmm. about reforming the political system. And that's why I asked Zuleika the question. I mean, I want to know Jan Bond, you know, are you gonna join a party and take over a party? Are you gonna stand as an independent? I mean every one of us then needs to be not just voting, but doing something that changes the system, that redistributes power within the ANC. I mean, notwithstanding nine years of state capture and another however many years of, of Tumamina flavor state capture. Um, I refuse to believe that there aren't, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the ANC somewhere who still believe in the values of the Constitution and transforming South Africa. So people better link with those people and change the parties is one of the messages coming over. Hey, we have Kaya Sitole waiting and we have Kate Stigerman waiting. Can we invite... Um, Jody, Adam, and Jan, for you to stick around if you want to, if you want to have a final word. And can we bring in our, our 
Um, we didn't get load shed off air ready. We're still on air. Can we bring Kaya in? Can we bring Kate in? Um, and we want solutions, guys. We know what the solutions are so far. We want to take over the parties ready. My notion of protesting by not voting, that's been blown out of the water. I'm dropping that I'm one. I'm so glad that we're making transitions here. We start from one point and then we end up at, uh, at another point. But I don't know. Kaya, are you there? Um, I mean, Kaya brings us this sharp uh, commentary about current affairs, about business and, 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 and so on. And uh, Kaya, we've been trying to test what our responsibility is in the next election, what this particular election is about. And I particularly like speaking to South Africans who are in and outside of, uh, of South Africa. One of the things that we said was that the current crop is too old. And then I think of people like yourself. Uh, if you were to run for some political leadership, I'm sure you'd be successful. Why is it that sharp... Uh, you know, uh, clever, smart, committed South Africans like yourself are not getting into politics. <laughs> uh, good evening to everyone. Hi. I hope you can hear me. Uh, first and foremost, first and foremost, I'm from KZN. So running for politics comes with a particularly uh, toxic uh, set of consequences if you're from KZN. Short but I think also... Yeah, I think obviously one of the big issues is that the South African political system that we've become accustomed to is really a political system that is based not only on the party system, but also how people get you know, embedded into political parties is something that itself isn't as fluid as young people would want it to be in order to be able to say, look, mm. I want to be able to be part of the political system, but I have ideas that resonate with particular you know issues for example but what political parties want to do is that once you become part of them you have to commit completely to their agenda and there are some parties that i look at and then i say look i mean when you look at the nc for example i think i like what some of its policy orientation tends to do but i think the architecture of the party just doesn't seem to be working for someone who wants to be able to express and canvas ideas and actually deliberate on issues before then formulating an opinion and I think also, obviously, the way party political systems have sort of been fashioned is that it, it is unlikely that you're ever going to have that type of freedom, that latitude to say, I'm here on a political party ticket, but I'm here to be able to sort of have, a, a, you know, a, a dissenting opinion. They unless, just don't accept that type of reasoning. Unless, you're, unless your name is Jacob Zuma, small aside, because then you can have your cake and eat it almost until you get suspended. Yeah. <laughs> He, he, he was a special character. He was a special character. Go yeah. on. So and you're not you're not going to get into politics. Yeah. You're, you're not going to get into politics because of the consequences. So how do we change the system so that it it delivers more? Look. So for me, for example, when it comes to the coalitions, my focus has not been on trying to get rid of coalition governments. I don't think that's ideal. In fact, I do want more contestation. I do want uh, 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 you know that type of um, anxieties that keeps people in check. But what he's quite important Hi, this is, is what that... I was hoping to do a tech, uh, tech start before we tried. I don't know what to do. It's his oh, okay, I don't know what... I think we've got... Can we mute? We need to mute Kate. I think Kate's yeah. solving a work problem. Yeah. Say her name Kate. loudly so the name yeah. can hear so, that it's her. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, for, for example, if you look at the chaos that you've seen in places like the city of Johannesburg, for example, what you've clearly seen is that the coalition governments themselves are not stable. 
mainly because what seems to be the meeting of the minds is not a meeting of principles, but simply a meeting of, well, if the intention is to get rid of that particular party, then all of us are going to cobble enough to vote together in order to get us there. But once we are across that line, then we realize we actually have nothing that binds us together. So you find that instability. My view is that what we want to be able to do is to insulate the second layer. And when I talk about the second layer, what we have right now is that if there's a new mayor in Johannesburg tomorrow, and there might be because they seem to be doing it as randomly as they can, that new mayor then appoints a new mayoral committee. And what that mayoral committee does is then it looks at the portfolio of, uh, 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 of the city's agencies that fall within that portfolio. And suddenly the people that either sit on the boards of those entities or sit as executives, there is this freeze in their ability to, to do anything. So they get paralyzed by the question of, well, can we really continue execute on what we were doing yesterday if there's going to be a new government tomorrow, which is clearly a different government from what we had? Do they not have a different agenda altogether? So what that does is that by paralyzing the ability of the system or the ability of the city to keep functioning, it then means that we've got this domino effect where coalitions are indeed a problem. The question that I want to canvas is, can we then be able to say then, regardless of what happens within the chambers of City Hall, those that have been given the mm -hmm. responsibility to run the Joburg, uh, a, 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 a fruit market, for example, or to run a city power, will still be able to execute on the mission to run city power because it is a mission that is uh, not influenced by the question of who the mayor is or isn't. Kaya. I think that is a long-term project. Can I ask you one short, sharp question? Because you said, you know, one political party, that, that any specific party. Let's talk about one particular party, the ANC. In the next elections, yeah. what would you like to happen to the ANC's majority? If you could write the numbers down, um, what would you like to happen to the ANC? Would you like them to lose completely? Would you like them to be stuck in the middle of a bunch of negotiations like Adam Habib wants? What's your view? I think what we want is a more accountable and a more responsive and a more responsible ANC. And what, unfortunately, that will require is for them to lose the absolute majority that gives them the type of arrogance, a sense of arrogance that we've seen that makes them feel that, well, so what if you don't like what we do? So what if you don't agree with what we do? And I think what has that done is that it is it's so become infused throughout the party, even people that you engage with at, you know, the lowest government level, for as long as they feel that they've got the backing of the party whose control over the state is not going to be dislodged anytime soon, then you can see even in the way that they engage with the electorate, the way they engage yeah. with citizens is not a way that's informed by the reality that actually we're here at the service of the citizens who have the capacity to remove us uh, from power. And I, th I, so I think until they get to that humble. particular stage, that makes them a bit more responsive and accountable. Yeah, I think that sense of humility yeah. will help because <laughs> in reality, if you look around... Yeah, the policies of other parties probably do not tick all the boxes that I think are important or necessary to get the country moving forward. And I think the ANC okay. has had the benefit of 30 years of being in policymaking. They kind of understand what the key issues are. They don't know how to execute on them, but at least they have a formula. They have the wisdom or the insight into knowing what needs to be addressed in the country. New parties probably haven't had enough exposure to be able to say this is why this policy must be championed and this is how it solves the issues for the majority of the South African citizens. Mbali, I want to bring you in here. Uh, we did have technical issues with Mbali earlier. Uh, just on the, uh, the topic of uh, changing parties from within that um, Adam first deposit, uh, posited here. You were once in a political party and, and, and you left, right? Uh, so 
we're talking about independence, younger people, and so on. What are your thoughts around changing what we have from within? From your experience, is it possible? I think there are very few parties um, that allow for that possibility unless you have uh, major backing and major money uh, would be my thing. So I did contest for the leadership of the DA. There's many reasons why that was not successful, but it was after a very long period of trying to change things democratically in many different ways. Um, I, I think I agree with Kaya and uh, uh, one of the speakers previously that it's not as easy to do to just change the political culture of something. Um, and I think particularly with the political parties that we have now, they become so ingrained in the culture of the way that they do things because it's always been the way that it's done. It's hard for them to actually change strategy. So when people get frustrated by the DA or by the ANC, it's because even people who might be really great in there don't have that space anymore because the culture is so dominant. Um, and, and to try and, and break it down, you also have to think ethically of what you'd be willing to do. And I think sometimes people are confronted with that and you decide whether you want to go fully scorched earth and, and compromise your ideals or if you try and find another way. I'm excited by the idea of independence, but I can tell you now, unless they're going to have a war chest, there's no way they're going to be able to go toe-to-toe with the political parties in the way that I think people imagine that they would be. At best, we'll have a couple of new faces in in our, in our parliament. But what we really should be doing is organizing far more effectively to be able to get the parties that we want, and particularly new parties and new political entrants to have space in that parliament. So I agree with the speaker that was talking about pluralism. I think it was Adam. Um, we need that. And the only way you can get that is if we give them their votes. But again, just to go back to the beginning of this conversation, that's never going to happen because it's incredibly hard to be a new party, register voters that will be your own, run an election, do poster fighting, and have the money to do that. And as South Africans, we're also very picky. We hate the status quo, but we also are very willing to drag down anyone who puts up their hand to say, well, I'd like to try and maybe I would like to, you know, give it a shot to say that I could be a leader. And so I can understand why people like Kaya um, don't get in, because people respect him right now. The minute he was to say, actually, I think I could be the political party or I'd like to try, there'd be a lot of people that would say, well, who do you think you are, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that was uh, As is happening to Songhezo and some of the yeah. younger people. I mean, I was inspired for the idea that he represents. Don't get me wrong. I'm not endorsing this one or that one. Just the idea that you can have something new in South Africa today and it gains traction in the manner which it has. You can not a career politician who was not made through the branches of the party. There's value in that, as Dr. Stembele told us, about being there, the grassroots and so on, the machinery of the party. But it is inspiring to know that you don't have to be part of a powerful behemoth of a political party in order to raise your voice in South Africa today. And that's why we have to keep encouraging them, and that's why we should actually give them uh, some choices and, and give them our votes, because then it gives the next person the opportunity to feel that, yes, actually, I can do it too. Because if we don't do that, we're going to continue to have the same people that we've had, and then we're going to twiddle our thumbs after the election and wonder why the results are as they are. And that's because we haven't actually made sure that we give the opportunity to people that do raise their hands and say that they're willing to lead. I mean, I still come back yeah. to my point that, oh, sorry, I just still come back to my point that we need a pact. We need, you know, everybody on the call to decide we're all going to vote for different parties. I mean, otherwise, how do we get the outcome that we're talking about?
Kate Stigerman works in the media. You work in the media and with the NGO yeah, world society. and civil society. Are you inspired by Rise and Zanzi? They've been using the media and social media a little bit more um, originally. No, shaking your head. Ben, I haven't worked in media for a very long time. I'm a political and advocacy analysis. So most of the work that I've done, we cool. have to be uh, sort of nonpartisan. So I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to reflect specifically on Rise and Zancy. I like the idea, you know, of a lot of guests that they've brought up about, you know, having people come and, you know, put some fire in the belly of our democracy. Um, but I think, you know, my value add here is more about substantive issues and you're working particularly as an African analyst. And I guess my point, because we're running out of time just very quickly, is that, you know, we've had some discussions. Um, there's been, you know, you yourself and some of the other guests have mentioned kind of some of the, you know, the issues in the global north. We've seen some concerns raised in the U.S. Um, I think Adam brought up, uh, you know, a little bit what's happening, you know, what we've seen concerning developments with India and Brazil, so kind of the global south. But I feel like what's often missing from our South African discourse, and I caveat what I partly understand because South Africa, you know, is so overwhelming with so many issues, but I really feel like what we miss is discussing kind of the regional continental issues. And it really concerns me that particularly, I think it was Dan who flagged early on in the conversation, you know, that we have this rising xenophobic sentiment, which is something I actually happened to have written my thesis on back in 2008. Um, and I track those developments closely. We've also recently seen like all these court cases with lawyers for human rights and a lot, you know, a lot going on with that. And um, I just think we need to grapple more with those sorts of issues. And instead of kind of simply sort of saying, oh, well, you know, there's populist discourse and we're not, you know, following through on the rights of various people living in South Africa. I really do think that we need to unpack those and what that means. And we really need to have a clear idea of what political parties are saying on that issue. Because if I know we've had a number of violent issues, you know, from Maracana to what happened, you know, um, in KZ and in Joburg a couple of years ago that was really traumatic. But I, for one, I'm just concerned as well about what we saw in 2008. And it's an issue that has come up again and again, 2015, 2019. Um, these people's rights are violated on a number of issues. Yeah. And I really think that while South Africans, yes, we can focus on what's important to us. We do share this continent with a number of other people and they have a right to be here. And that's something that I really think should be properly unpacked when we look at these substantive issues that are important in the lead up to elections. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that you raise that, Kate, because it is a global phenomenon uh, that some populists have, have decided or have uh, found out that that is the way to win elections malign everybody and anybody who doesn't look and sound like the locals exploit the fact that there is fear and anxiety but then use others as a, as, as a scapegoat it's not something to whose magnitude and impact we, sh we should diminish and i'm not surprised that it's a big electoral issue for so many people ben yeah i mean you know it's actually being treated exactly the wrong way around hey kate it's being exploited you know, as a ticket to get people into power if they can out, you know, Afrophobe the next politician from Herman Mashaba, you know, now to Aaron Matsuledi and others. And I mean, you'd have to be a brave woman or man in South Africa in 2024 to say, my party is about inclusivity for South Africans, for people from all across Africa, people from all across the world who are in, in South Africa. You know, it's an interesting question to ask. How much support would you get if that's the ticket you stood on? And isn't it maybe understandable... Good point, Stan. Yeah. yeah. Is, is it maybe understandable that people are, you know, not willing to be generous in their political outlook because they feel they didn't get, and maybe we can come to you, Kaya, with this thought, 
because for 25 to 30 years, so many millions of South Africans rightly feel they didn't get what was promised. They didn't get the better life. They didn't get the constitutional socioeconomic rights. So it's a bit hard to say to South Africans from townships and rural areas across the country, you should be more generous to Nigerians and to Somalis living in your community. You should. It's in the Constitution. But people will come back and say, we didn't get the better life that was promised to us and the socioeconomic rights that were promised to us. Fair point, Ben. I'm curious to see what, um, you know, what, what, what other guests have to say. Sorry, over to you. Sorry for interrupting, Kaya. Kaya, you're muted. Yeah, I think that's a critical point. And I think, obviously, when 2008 happened, a lot of us were forced to reflect on this. And my own reflections were that what had become the new South African tragedy is that people like you and I were then in a position to say, look, if we think there is a particular social contestation here, we are going to buy our way out of it to insulate ourselves. We can live in gated estates. We can access private education. So for some of us, there is a point in time when you're driving home and there's a point at which government ceases to be relevant because once you're driving home, everything is now provided by private enterprise. And clearly, far too many citizens do not have that option. So what you're then seeing is that the contestation for the limited resources is then happening at that level. And what then becomes a big problem is that if I then see another person who occupies a job that I feel that could have been mine in another dimension, then, of course, that person becomes the enemy. That person becomes the issue. Yeah. And I think what then infumes, what then inflames the xenophobic tensions is also the fact that you see a lot of it happening at the top of in, in the type of a social economic strata where access, uh, you know, barriers to access aren't very high. So if you talk about how people come up with these ideas that you know, I went to a restaurant and all the waiters and the waitresses were foreigners. Well, it's because it's the type of job that actually everyone feels that they could get. So the reason I don't have it must be because the foreigner displaced me, rather than the fact that maybe I didn't even apply for that job. So clearly what we've done is that we've created that new social uh, contestation where unfortunately the, 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 the citizens who don't have much in the way of means are the ones that are feeling most displaced. They're the ones that are looking around and saying, well, actually, perhaps if that Somali shop had not been opened in that corner, I would have been able to open this puzzle shop. That's the first uh, 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 problem. The secondary problem then becomes that, well, actually, even if these shops didn't exist, because those same South African citizens don't have access to resources, they probably still wouldn't be in a, posi be in a position to then yep. set up their own puzzle shop. But I think for as long as people have to deal with the first layer of, of anxiety, that is what they're going to yeah. deal with. The question of what happens yeah. afterwards is something that they're going to tackle at a later stage. And that's something but we should have addressed since 2008. It goes to show, like, the thing is that this is all based on assumption, right? Because if you look at a lot of the data, and unfortunately I don't have it at hand, those numbers are less high than what our political leaders are implying. And yeah. that's why it goes, so how far we've come. Really, you talked about, you know, the last elections, remember, you know, around, you know, what happened around 2019 and everything we've seen in the trajectory in the last few years. It goes to show how far we've come from what our constitution stands for, that we're at this point. And, and it, is, you know, yeah. it is concerning. And the ANC doesn't really have an incentive to honestly critique its own record from the last 25 to 30 years. I mean, let's do the maths. South Africa is a middle-income, upper-middle-income country, according to the World Bank and IMF and the United Nations. 
If you divide the total income of the country by the number of South African citizens, you get a very healthy yeah. I- income. If you even divide it by all the people in the country, we're still a middle-income country. Even if you include all of the visitors, all of the migrants, or whatever you want to call people who find themselves in South Africa. So the problem is not lack of resources. People can contribute to the economy and grow the economy if you give them an opportunity. The problem is the misallocation of resources, the chowing of resources, and the failure to you know, build an inclusive society, which is something, to some extent, I think all of us have to take a responsibility for, but ANC politicians don't have an incentive to honestly unpack their failures from the last 25 yeah. years. We're getting towards the end, Ready? What are, your, what are your closing thoughts about this? I mean, I feel we need to start to think about you know, the messages we've heard, take over the parties, support the independents, make sure that the ANC you know, has a reduced majority, you know, but is still around and playing a role in politics. I don't know how we achieve that one. Um, Counter the xenophobic and populist, right-wing populist messages, and by all means, go and vote whatever else you do to change the country. I don't know if I missed anything on the list. Go go for it. No, I I, I do that. Uh, It's humbling to just reckon with the complexity of, that even for those of us who are unequivocal about our mess, we've got to vote, we've got to get out. We can't uh, ignore the complexity that goes with that. If people feel that they're not being seen, they're not being ripped, then you've got to engage with that rather than be yelling at people to go. I can imagine what it feels like to be a Palestinian American uh, or a Muslim American or Brits who lives in the UK and you live in the United States and your current leaders, Joe Biden and Sunak, are not doing what you and many of us across the world feel they should do. Cease fire now. Uh, Stop this carnage. Stop supporting and arming uh, Israel. And in that context, when the voters have a choice between Biden and Trump, what do they do? Because that's Trump who's threatened uh, in, in so many ways Muslim voters before. So to go to people like that and say, well, if you don't vote for Biden, Trump is coming in. That is diminishing the pain that they are feeling over yeah. what's happening in Palestine. So I'm just saying that even as we repeat this mantra, go out and vote, let's engage with the complete, the layers that tell us why people are not voting so that we can uh, reflect on that, interact and go back to where they are and understand what their politics are. I also take out of this conversation, really, the the conversation around reforming the electoral system. Has the time arrived for that? Albie Sachs touched on on that. Um, Adam Habib touched on that. The system was built for a particular time in 94. Is it still fit for purpose? And who are the men and women who will start that journey uh, of reform? Yeah. I think you and me crossed during this uh, webcast, Ready, You started by saying everybody must go vote, and you ended by saying let's listen much more carefully to let's why listen people... Let's why they're not voting. Why they're not voting, even yeah. As, so, yeah. Let, rather let, than go vote for many people, blah, 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 blah. Let's give uh, those who remained, who stuck with us, uh, a final, you know, 30 seconds each. Adam, if you have a message, I believe that Zuleika might still be around um, Kaya, I'll be Kate. still there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Albi's just gone. Yeah. Yep. Adam. It was said earlier Last on. How do we ensure that people go to vote, but they can vote for somebody who's talented? Because yeah. too many people 
see a talentless political system, as Dan put it, and we've got to find them candidates and change the system so we can have more talented people for people to vote for. Great. Kaya? I think one of the issues that we need to be able to find is to restore the ballot box as basically the central instrument of getting political accountability. And what that simply means is that my view is that far too many citizens have felt that in South Africa, your best chance of getting a response from the state is not through going and voting out a ward chancellor, but either destroying the public infrastructure that then gets the state to pay attention. And then they say, oh, so what is it that you're worried about? So I think the fact that we've normalized the fact that the state is far more responsive to manifestations of violence, whether it's FISMAS 4, whether it's service delivery protests, rather than them continuously engaging with the electorate to say, well, maybe let us actually have a particular uh, voting process that says, in this particular communities, what are the issues that matter most to you? So that people then see the ballot box as a central instrument of actually getting accountability in democracy. If we get that right, then many more people will say, well, actually, there's no, I'm going to sit out this process because it is a singular instrument that ensures that people are able to address the issues that I want. Right now, unfortunately, everybody's finding a parallel way of getting a reaction from the state. And in most instances, it's the violence that seems to get the, 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 the fastest reaction from the state. Kate? I mean, just to, to make quickly, I mean, I think we absolutely need more voter education. We're so lucky to have people who are working on that, you know, from CSOs. But we need, you know, the new political party kids on the block to be having public meetings. We need to find a way to fire up the youth and get them involved. And then to go back to my point, which can be made more general about xenophobia, we need people to understand what's in our constitution. Because ultimately, I know it sounds naive considering where we are right now. And I know many people still think it's like a fictional document. But we really are supposed to be known as having like a rights-based economy that's really progressive. And even though there's so many competing interests, we need to get back to that. We need to encourage politicians to do what is right and, you know, and really stand up for that. And again, I know that's a big ask, but I really hope to see that in the lead up to the, to the elections. Because so far... I'm a little disillusioned, um, you know, with, with the established players on, on that front. I think Zuleika... final thoughts on you? And if Zuleika is there, put your camera on and we can take a last comment from you as well. Yeah. So let's, let's get Jody, Zuleika, and then Bali, then we'll be concluding. Jody? Um, I think the thing is we often agree a lot more than we think we do. It's, it's very easy to get the impression that the very loud voices on either end of the extremes are, are the, the majority, but we often actually in the middle agree with each other with a lot more and have the tools in our system to, ma to make progress, even if it's not solving all of the big issues, to actually make progress on a lot of our, on a lot of our big issues. Um, so I think going after election, whoever's in is going to be in. We have to accept that it's going to take time to solve a lot of our big issues, but we can make progress quite quickly on some of those issues. And that takes being involved beyond just voting. So that would be my key thing, is pick an issue, recognize what you've got, and be involved at least beyond, beyond the voting station. Thank you. Okay. Zuleika? Zuleika? Thank you. I think my parting, my parting statement would be that, firstly, I believe we need a heavy amount of voter registration education, especially for the young voter that is in the most remote corner of this country and is hopeless and does not want to vote, but still lacks the necessary voter education. So we definitely need a 
heavy amount of voter education, especially because this weekend we're heading into the last voter registration weekend, and I've not seen enough PR around that. And there's so many unregistered young people. And then secondly, we need to revisit the current electoral system if that still currently works for us 30 years into democracy, because this is a system that was built for 1994's election. And does that still work currently? Is it still relevant to our current um, state of affairs in the country? And lastly, I think this election has to be the second most important election in this country's history because we're now 30 years into democracy. And for the past 30 years, we've had one governing party rule for the past 30 years. And in the past 30 years, we need to really begin to question and unpack the layers of our society and the many layers of oppression that exist within our society and unpack how we are still dealing with um, a country that still has remnants of the apartheid system in the socioeconomic landscape of this country. And so this year's vote is one of the most important votes because it marks almost a turning point because we are now 30 years into into democracy and 30 years of having had one political party rule over the past 30 years and we've seen a lack of accountability a breakdown in leadership essentially a leadership crisis a lack of accountability and we have not seen um a great enough change in the living standard of majority of south africans so like i happen to know i happen to know so like a couple of people who would vote for you if you uh if you're not going to join a party, maybe you want to be independent. Maybe you want to start a new party. There's always... You already said what? that she would like to run as an independent. And of course, she expects nothing less than president at that time. And she doesn't have much time because she thinks people who are 50 must... <laughs> I, I can still vote for her. Even if I can't stand, I can still vote for her. Um, yeah, think... absolutely. Mbali gives us the final thought wrapping up yeah. Thanks, Freddie. And I'm so so sorry about my power issues um, brought to us by our government because I actually had a lot to say in this uh, particular conversation. And one of the things I would have said was that we we can have these conversations as much as we like, but nothing's going to change politicians unless they feel that there's some kind of stick on them. And the only stick that we have as the citizens is if we go out in numbers and we register and then we make sure that we are calculated in the ways that we decide to use those votes and that requires a massive amount of civic education which we haven't done since 1994 so one of the next conversations we need to have is not just young people but c-level executives the media academia lots of people don't know how the very basics of their own country and their own communities even work people don't even contribute or are active in them and so they remain paralyzed by the inability to be able to do anything more. And I just, I'm so tired as South Africans of us having these conversations and lamenting the situations when most people don't know when their council is. Most people have never met their council or gone to any kind of meeting. Most people don't know that they can go and sit in these UIPs and decide on the IDP or the SGB. And unless we're going to take a very mature decision as South Africans that we actually have to have some contribution to the participation and the accountability that happens after the elections, we're going to have this conversation again and again. And so civics is important, of course, because people need to know how to do it. Registration is important. But more importantly, if we're not going to be active um, and, and understand that democracy requires us to actually take a part, 
we not we cannot expect that politicians are going to be better angels or decide tomorrow that this is what like is the best thing for South Africans. They will continue to give us the lowest denominator behavior that they can, and they'll get away with it with impunity. So I want us to organize. I'm less interested in too many of the other conversations because until we are able to do that, we can't even move the system because only a few politicians, most of the biggest parties have less than one million votes, are making decisions for all of us, and that's because we've allowed them to. Mm-hmm. On that sobering note, whew, that's it. That's all I have to say. <laughs> no, I need... So much food for our table, Ben. Uh, you were right. One starts off a conversation in a particular way, and the new ideas, the commentary that we had from our guests, those who are still here and not here, thank you so very much. And everybody else who was, uh, who was listening, these things matter to me, and it's great to be amongst like-minded people. But different uh, perspectives and approaches thanks you know we have to thank um, a few people before we sign off um, I'm just a little bit disappointed that all the people that I want to vote for are uh, are not standing are not in political parties anymore or not standing but it's okay We're, we've put out that message that they must uh, they must rejoin politics and they must uh, transform we need to thank mm-hmm. The um, News 24 for hosting this conversation. We need to thank the Friedrich Neumann Foundation um, for putting some resources in um, to help us have this conversation. And um, thanks, Riddy Clabby, for having the idea. And um, even though you're across the world in the United States and, um, you know, uh, you're still the commander in chief. What is your what is your official title? What is it? Not commander. No, in my official title is that woman who sends you a WhatsApp in the middle of the night to say, let's talk about elections and democracy. That's the That's one. That's what started. Thank you for sending the message. Uh, there's, there's a second episode coming up. We're going to do another one of these in about a week and a half's time. Watch for the publicity. And then I think our last one, um, if all goes to plan, will be with some of the leaders and the candidates and the independents in the parties. So watch this space. There's a couple more episodes of Reality Check coming up soon. And then um, we'll see where Reality Check goes. Thanks for your time, everybody. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.